Welcome. It's always great to be greeted by a bunch of kids leaving the room. That just I'm such a good speaker, I just always wonder. Um, even my own kids leave when I start to speak. Isn't that kind of funny? Well, today we're starting a new series called The Art of Neighboring. Some of you I know are great neighbors, like the best neighbors, because I listen to stories about how you and your neighbors interact and how you treat your neighbors. I have a great neighbor. So I, 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 I actually been thinking about this this weekend because I've got a neighbor, his name's Clem. His wife, Bonnie, I've only seen outside three times. She's the introvert of the couple, okay? But Clem is a retired uh, uh, teacher, and what he does every year is he blows my leaves, my front yard leaves, before I get to him. I never get to the front yard leaves. I always blow the backyard, but I can't get to the front yard before he comes out with this huge backpack blower and just finishes my yard in like 45 minutes. That is a good neighbor. Clem is one of my favorite people in the world. I know. All of you are like, oh, you're letting me down. I thought I was. The reality is he knows what it means to be a good neighbor. But sometimes I, I, I have spiritual conversations with him, and I kind of don't know where he stands on certain things. And it leads me to wonder is if we as Christians can be great neighbors. So that's what that's what's breeding this series and what started um, my discovery process with what it means to be a neighbor. So if you have our app, you can click the link at the top of the feed, and then you'll find our version event there. I'm going to pray before we get into the passage this morning. And honestly, this passage is one that you probably heard since you were a child if you grew up in the church. But we're going to look at it a little bit differently than maybe you did as a child. So let's pray. Heavenly Father... We come before you and we are just thankful that you sent your son Jesus Christ for us. That you chose to show us what it means to be a neighbor. You chose to do the ultimate neighborly act and give yourself up for us. Do something that that would be so hard for us to do on our own and we could not ever measure up, but you did it on on your own, on the cross. So as we look at at this, this parable where the person that is least expected is a neighbor, help us to gain both insight and wisdom from your word and that your Holy Spirit would transform us this morning to be better neighbors And know the people around us. Know what's going on in their lives. So that when we do have that small moment, an opening that the Holy Spirit gives for us to share with them the greatest gift that we have ever been given in Jesus Christ. We say all this in his name. Amen. So, there's a question that's been asked for centuries. What does it mean to be a neighbor? Who is your neighbor? It's actually been asked for thousands of years, going all the way back to the first five books of the Bible. When you look at the first five books of the Bible, they ask, who do you think our neighbor is? So if we were going to start to neighbor in our community and serve others well, we have to start by knowing our community. Let's, Let's dream for a second. 
I know in school they told you not to daydream. I'm asking you to daydream during my sermon here, okay? Let's dream for a second. What is your dream for where you live? For Angola, for Fremont, for Hamilton, for whatever county you might live in, even if it's not Steuben County. What is your dream for where you live? If you could go and ask God to change anything about where you live, what would it be? Think about that for a second. What would you ask God to change about where you live? What would it be? What makes you feel neighborly? That's really the question that we're asking. Because relationships are always superior to programs. And, and government leaders in our country have noted this. It's clear. There's research about it all over the country. They've noted a few things about neighbors. One, they've noticed neighborhoods where there's close bonds together with other human beings. Those people live longer. When there's detachment and neighbors don't know each other, they don't live as long. Where people know the names of their eight closest neighbors, I know that's very specific, crime is 60% less on average. Whoa. That's pretty cool. When natural disasters strike, neighbors are your first responders. You know, if you live in a rural area here, it could take 15 minutes to get to where you're at. Then there's a volunteer fire department. It might take longer than that. You never know. And the first people that respond are your neighbors that see, hey, there's a tree down on their house. Let's go over there. Let's help them. But here's the one that's most disconcerting, is they did this research and they looked at religious background. And there's no visible difference between Christians and non-Christians when it, meet, when it comes to being a neighbor. When they, they, they say how neighborly you are. And that last one is the one I'm discouraged by. Because, because if Jesus, when he chose to pray in John chapter 17, and if you're not familiar with it, he prayed for unity among believers before the cross. And so when we become one as a church, as a body of Christ, as the body of Christ, people who don't know Jesus are drawn towards him. That's part of being a neighbor. My neighbor Clem, he really likes blown leaves, I guess. But you know what he usually does? He's like, hey, I'm going to get to it tomorrow. And I'm like, I can't get to it for a week, so that's great. <laughs> but he just does it because he wants to be a good neighbor. So if we're followers of Jesus, we will love God with all that we are and love our neighbor, pause, as much as we love ourselves. Jesus was a genius. He was a genius. He lives and gives the most strategic commandment that would change the world if believers actually followed it. But humanity finds it difficult to live up to what we think is right. What we know is right. Often, and I'm sure you've seen this, the loudest voices with the ideas also are the biggest offense to those same ideas. It's not uncommon to, to love the idea that you love people and provide for them. Seems like a good idea, right? Rather than just loving them. Because that's a little bit harder. You love the idea, but not the potential cost. And if Jesus is the model, 
and he's the one that knows what it means to love his neighbor and paid that ultimate price, he is the best source to find what it means to be a neighbor. So what does Jesus say to the question, who is my neighbor? Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And we're going to find someone come to him, much like all of us do. We come to God and we have questions. I'm going to start reading in verse, verse 25, and I'm going to read through verse 29 in Luke chapter 10. And it starts by saying, And behold, a lawyer stood up and to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus is talking back to him, and he says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer didn't want to stop there. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I'm going to pause for a second. I know, that's a cliffhanger, because you know Jesus is going to answer. But here's this lawyer, he stands up to ask Jesus a question, and he's going to test Jesus. So he asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Can you imagine the kid in the classroom? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Raises their hand, they stand up, like, whoa, we're starting with the big questions here. And really that question means something to the effect of, how do I live as a part of God's kingdom? Is God's kingdom is eternal And that he would have understood that. So John 3.36 gives us the answer. In John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So listen to Jesus. That's the answer. And Jesus responds to the lawyer with a question, as he often did. This leads to the lawyer quoting what's called, the the Jews called the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. But then the lawyer also adds what is in Leviticus 19, 18, when he adds the last line, your neighbor as yourself. And so in case you don't know what the Shema is, Shema means to hear, and it was recited by the Jews every morning and every evening. Almost like your morning prayer and evening prayer. They would recite this, hear, O Israel, and then they would continue with those verses. So what we see here is there's four aspects of how we are to love God on display. Four aspects. This is actually the most comprehensive version of of what's said here. And the first one is our heart. So our heart is our emotions. So God is to be loved with your emotions. There's a lot of times there's certain emotions that are not really about loving God. There's anger, there's frustration, there's bitterness. There's lots of emotions that aren't. Then you have our soul. Our soul is our consciousness. Like, you know how people say, I did that subconsciously? Well, your consciousness, every day that you walk through life, that's what your calling is, is God is to be loved with our consciousness. And then our strength is our motivation. God is to be loved with our motivations. If we're motivated by the wrong things, we're not showing our love for God. We're showing our love for other motivations and other things. 
And then our mind is intelligence. God is to be loved with our intelligence. That sounds so, like, sterile, though. Like, intelligence. It's, it's that our mind, everything that we're thinking, is what we're supposed to love God with. Our thoughts. This means if we love God with all that we are, it's deeper than the surface. It's to the core. We're able to see our love for God, though, in how we love others. Seeing others' love for God is hard. You can't go around with a little indicator. You ever do a, a construction project and they have this stud finder? And it goes beep, 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 right? You're beep, 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 beep. I, there's no stud finder for if someone loves God, okay? Let's just be honest. I can't go around and like, oh, I sense it. Oh, oh, that part. There's no stud finder for that. So it's hard, but seeing how you treat others can be verified. That is so true. Galatians 5.14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And they're not saying one literal word. They're talking about the one phrase. But it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we can only love our neighbors if we love God first. So like with many interactions Jesus had with people, the lawyer had a motive. And this lawyer thought he had the truth. He thought he had the truth. So he stood up to challenge Jesus to test him, and he was concerned about the Jewish law found in the Torah, the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. He was so concerned, and Jesus, in responding the way he did, and you can see that there in verse 26, is he's affirming what's found in the Old Testament. I spent a lot of thought on this, especially for this series, that Jesus is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He many times quotes the Old Testament to say, yes, that is true, but this is how it's true. And this is what the Word of God says. So Jesus here shows us how to radically love our neighbors. Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. It's so different than what we want to do because we're busy. Because we got other things going on. And the good news is this. It's not just about your actions because our salvation is by grace, undeserved favor through faith. And our faith works out in love. Again, from Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Basically, hey, you don't need to do these extra works, but only faith working out through love. So the, the works that come from faith working out through love. And James 2.17 even adds, so by faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Think about this for a second. Someone tells you they're going to do something. They never do it. So does that mean they had faith or they, they were going to follow through or there was anything going on? No, of course not. So in light of these verses, the lawyer responding to his own questions seems rather foolish. He knows better. We can be the same way. We know what is right, but we don't do it. Jesus is essentially saying this, and, and if you hear anything this morning, this is what Jesus is saying in this earlier part. You already know the answer, so go for it. Practice what you preach. Don't sit down and, and say, I'm not going to be a good neighbor because guess what? I, I don't know. I don't want to. I'm afraid. Or I don't have time. 
If you say you love God and your neighbor, love them. There's no excuse. He's not giving you an excuse here. Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. But as most lawyers are, they're good at debating and arguing a position. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a lawyer. So the lawyer, in verse 29, says, okay, you made me look foolish. I'm going to make you look foolish. And he says, as he's trying to make a case for himself, it actually says there he's trying to justify himself. And he says, who is my neighbor? You know that question is actually, I, I might say this, is, is almost from the pit of hell. Because everyone says, who is my neighbor? Anytime someone asks that question, it's to get out of doing something for God. I'm just going to throw that out there. Like, every time I've asked that question, I'm getting out of doing something for another person. Like, who's my neighbor? I don't really need to do this. They're not my neighbor. So it's important to get in his shoes. He missed Jesus' point. He missed what Jesus was trying to say. And, And culturally, he would have put the great command in a box. So whatever your box is, it doesn't look like this Jewish lawyer, but it looks differently. The Jews in that culture would have seen another Jew as a neighbor, but they wouldn't have seen a Samaritan, a Gentile, any of us that's not Jewish from a Jewish background, anyone seen us as a, as a neighbor, or another people group. They definitely wouldn't have seen a Babylonian, because they were, they were exiled to Babylon for a while. So ask yourself this question. Who do you think is your neighbor? Who do you think is your neighbor? What do you think Jesus has to say about that? He responds. There's the cliffhanger. We get to what he's actually going to say in verse 30. And he's going to say something. And when we look at it in the context, I personally am definitely convicted. And I hope that it it rings true that there's, there's things and ways we can interact differently as a result of what Jesus says here. So starting in verse 30... Jesus replied. It seems like he has a lot to say here. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed to the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by to the other side. Sounds like there's a, there's a pattern here. But verse 33, there's a shift. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay with you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now Jesus got another question for him. And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I would not want to be the lawyer at the end of this. The guy that studied the word of God all the time and still doesn't get it. 
Jesus turns to story to help the lawyer understand what he's saying. This is a parable, and that's why I said if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this before. And the road to Jericho here is described as dangerous, and these robbers left this man for dead. So we find this man half dead on the road, and people start coming down the road. And they they keep coming down the road. First, there's a priest. And this priest, of course, decides to go around to the opposite side of the road. If you notice, it's almost the same words as the Levite. The Levite would have worked in the, the temple as well. And so they go around the person that's half dead on the side of the road. What's interesting is they social distanced before it was cool. Like, there was no reason to go to the opposite side of the road. They just decided to. They thought, I'm not going near that. You know, they're like, ooh, there's something over there, and there's no virus or nothing else going on. And these religious people, they acted in opposition to love. But I will tell you this, it wasn't in opposition to expectations. But Jesus here leaves them with no excuse, as we will see. They needed to stay pure for their temple duties, and touching a dead body would have made them unclean, right? That's a good excuse. It would be a great excuse, except for what Jesus includes here. Jesus tells us enough that they were headed away from the temple responsibilities, having finished in Jerusalem and headed back home, and there was no need to avoid the man. And they had no compassion. This is like if we drive by on the freeway and we see this crazy car crash and we don't see any emergency vehicles, we don't see anyone stopped and we just keep driving. Just keep going. Forget it. And that's what they do. They don't just do that. They get as far away from him as possible. Once they see what's there, they get out of eyesight. They're like, I don't want to see this anymore. But Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. This is what he does here. It's not, it's not normal love. It's different. It's radical love for our neighbors. So this third person comes to the man. He was half, naked, half dead and he was naked and afraid. But this third person was not the one person that Jew, the Jew would have expected. It was not one that they were expecting. And honestly, it sounds like maybe the audience was thinking, hey, now the normal Jew would come along and we'll be the hero. No, the audience would have thought it differently. They would have never expected it was going to be a Samaritan. I might have not spoken of this before, but I think we need to know what a Samaritan was in that culture and what the people, the Jewish people, thought about them. So to help us understand how hated the Samaritans were by the Jews, let's look to a few other verses. Two of the disciples asked Jesus, right before this in Luke chapter 9, if they should call down fire from heaven to consume a couple inhospitable Samaritans. Luke 9.54 says... And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, this inhospitable behavior, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Whoa! I don't know about any of you, but I've never done that for my worst enemy. I want fire to consume you. You know, <laughs> they literally, they say that. But it's not, even, it's not even just there. Jesus is challenged by the Jews that he's either demon-possessed or a Samaritan or both. That's the comparison. There's nothing worse than being a Samaritan to being a Jew. John 8, 48 says, The Jews answered him, 
They're responding to Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? It's like the worst. I'm just sitting here. I don't want to be a Samaritan after reading this. And kind of we're a mix of mutt, most of us, because we're Gentiles. I don't even want to stop there. The rabbis, the teachers of the day, the teachers of the Jewish people had a prayer like this. Imagine this prayer on your worst enemy. There's no way. It says, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is he who eats swine's flesh. There was nothing worse than eating a pig to a Jew. And then the prayer concluded with, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. What? (laughs) This is how hated they are. Their intense animosity towards the Samaritans. And then the Samaritan walks up after the Levite and the priest, the people they look up to. And there's a huge moment of transformation here for the audience and for us. Who is your Samaritan? Who's your Samaritan? I said some pretty, pretty hard things right there. Who's your Samaritan? Who would you be surprised to be loved by and cared for? Might be a person, might be a people group. What would you have to change in your perspective to love them as your neighbor? Jesus radically changed their viewpoint on what it means to love your neighbor. The lawyer in the audience would have seen that he falls short. The Samaritan, though, did more than the minimum. I mean, the minimum probably was get him somewhere, but then he like pays for things, he pays for him to stay there. He saw another human being in need, and he did all he could for them. Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. I mean, Jesus is literally telling the Jews that have this intense animosity, and I'll even say hatred, for the Samaritans. And there's reasons for that, that the list is really long. I, I really shortened it, but they, they couldn't stand them. And he said, be like this Samaritan. Because Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. It's different. It looks different. If anything, the reason I was so sad when I, I mentioned that research is that, that Christians should be the model for being a neighbor rather than see no difference. We shouldn't look like the world when we're a neighbor. We should look more like Jesus as a neighbor. And so in verse 36... Jesus asks a question, and the lawyer's response show us, shows us he was limiting who his neighbor was. And Jesus' response shows us how we're supposed to be a neighbor. So how can we be a neighbor? As neighbors, we see needs, we feel, we serve others. But something you may think you're hearing from me is a neighbor doesn't meet every need that we're aware of. We can't. But we are, we are a part of the, the piece of the puzzle that helps others. And hear, hear this this morning. This is what is made clear through what Jesus says. How we neighbor validates or invalidates our claims to know and love God. Don't forget that. So how we neighbor validates or invalidates our claims to know and love God. 
He clearly wasn't showing the priest and the Levite were doing what they needed to. He clearly wasn't. So where is our evidence in our relationships that we love God? Are we merciful to others? Talks about mercy. Do we have compassion for others? And being a neighbor comes in all shapes and sizes. All backgrounds. We're only limited by one thing. It's by our failure to see, feel, and respond. We're limited by our failure to see, feel, and respond. And this parable is really a great reversal. Things are not what they seem. The one who loved God and others was the most unexpected. The one who needed to be a neighbor and knew how to be a neighbor was written off and excluded. So are we truly loving our neighbors or just calling ourselves Christians? Now, I've definitely thought about this because... Some of you know me well enough to know that I could talk to anybody and I've never met a stranger, so it's really easy for me. So thanks, Pastor, for talking about this, okay? So I want to say that there's two things I think that get in the way. We can be intimidated about being a neighbor, like when do I have time for that? Or we can be afraid of opening up, so we have fear and we have time. And we're going to be talking about that in this series because there is issues that come up. I would say the thing that keeps me from being a better neighbor is time. And we're going to talk about that in this series. But there's a first step, and it looks like this. This progression starts by learning your neighbor's names. And I I love this because it goes from, hey, man, when you see your neighbor, hey, you know, to, hey, George, to, hey, George, how are you doing? Hey, George, there's something in my garage I need help with. Can you help me for a quick second? To, hey, George, I saw that your, your son moved back. How's that going? As we become neighbors and love like the Samaritan, let's take a practical step. Now, some of you got a bulletin when you came in, and there's this little grid. You guys are really scared of the grid. I gave gave homework today. Only the first week, okay? This is something that we are going to use as a church. I'm going to refer back to this after this series a few times Um, with some frequency, you know, every once in a while. So you see there's, there's eight spots around you. And you're here, and then there's eight spots. Well, take this sheet, and this will help you progress from being a stranger to an acquaintance to having a relationship with your neighbors. So who lives on your block? That's what this is. The names of the people in the eight closest spots. And some of you live in such rural areas that you're saying, my eight neighbors are four miles away. I know that because I've had a few people, as I've talked about this, go, yeah, uh, do I, like, drive down the street and, like, go to every house and try to figure out who lives there, I'm like, no, that's a little scary, okay? Don't do that. But your closest neighbors, get to know them, write the names on there as you go through this grid. If you're in a rural area, there's another opportunity. Who else are you around? Who are you in proximity with? Do you work with someone? Do you, do you know someone that you see every day? Do you always go to Five Lakes Coffee at a certain time? Well, that person that's always at the cash register is your neighbor. Like, you know their name already. You might have even asked them a question at some time that was personal. So get everyone's name in the eight closest places. So let me ask you a question. As you look at this, how many of you think that you know at least four spots? Four spots. Anybody know four neighbors? Okay, how many of you know five? We're going to go up. Keep your hands up. Five. Six. Whoa. Seven. Uh, eight. 
You guys know, okay, look around for a second. Look at the percentage of eights. Okay, I'm going to tell you this. I want, I want to be honest. I've seen this with a group of pastors, and there wasn't that many hands up, okay? <laughs> so it's a little bit intimidating trying to be a neighbor when you're so busy. You just try to be busy, and you do things. But the reality is, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Some of us live a great distance from our neighbors, so we need to put on there who we interact with the most. So why? Why do we do that? Why do we think like the Samaritan? The Samaritan stumbled upon someone, so why would we think in proximity? Well, it comes down to a sermon Paul had in Acts chapter 17. You've been placed in a specific neighborhood for you to bring God's glory for us to be used for God's glory as well. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says something that I think we should all be thinking about. When he's speaking to the Greeks, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. But here's what is very important. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. You have neighbors that are there for an allotted time period with specific boundaries in specific spaces and you are the one that can reach them, that can share with them, that can encourage them, that can ask questions and get to know them. Some of you have friendships with your neighbors for 15, 20 years. You have a huge opportunity just to one day say, you know, my life is different and there's a reason. You've been placed in your neighborhood for a specific reason because God is not far from you. And though God is not far from you and through you, your neighbors are not far from God either. So when you live for Jesus Christ, God is with you and uses you to love your neighbors well. So I'm left with the question, what is God going to do through Sunlight Community Church, through relationships that we build in our neighborhoods? What are we going to do to build neighborhoods in our community rather than just a collection of people in proximity? So let's take the great command literally and love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with your, na- and your neighbor as yourself. Because our neighbors need God. Jesus shows us how to radically love our neighbors. There's no different way. This is the way to radically love your neighbors. So now, church, let's do one thing. What does he end with? What does he say? What Jesus says, go and do likewise. Let's do that, church, just like Jesus says. Let's go and do likewise. Let's be good neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you, and if we're honest, we have a lot of things that fill up our time, and none of them is having the random conversation with our neighbor usually. (laughs) But God, you've put us in a specific place and space at a specific time to be a neighbor. 
Let us take the, the great command literally. Let our community, our neighborhoods, know that we love Jesus and know that we are neighbors because we love Jesus. That we care for each other, but we care for those we're in proximity with. And that that the love of Christ flows through us to our neighbors. God, please help us to leave today, not just inspired, but God, with moving forward with action. Help us to go from having one person on this list, then over a year get to the point where we have eight and we know our neighbors. Let us be the church that people see as truly loving our community and caring for Steuben County and for the neighborhoods that we are all a part of. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.